On this episode of the BYO Nano Podcast, there's more to fermentation than just beer. And in our brewer's profile this month, we head to California to learn about adding a food component to your small brewery. And then it's up to Oregon to check in on the 2022 hop crop and what harvest might have in store later this year. This is John Hall, and welcome to episode 30. In proof that some of the most interesting things in American craft beer are happening on the small scale, we'll start off this month with the brewery profile on Culture House, a five-barrel brew house in Pismo Beach, California, where they're not only making beers, but fermenting pickles, sauerkraut, and vegetables to extol the virtues of microbes. The founders, Jennifer Harris and Eric Kirchner, will join me for a conversation. And then we're going to spotlight hops. As the growing season is well underway and the harvest is now in sight, Gail Gochi of Gochi Farms in Oregon will join me to talk about the weather, the outlook, what continues to grow well, and what she has her eyes on. But first, a word of thanks to the show's sponsors, and we hope you'll give them a closer look. Yakima Chief Hops has been building a robust portfolio of their Cryo Hops brand products for the last five years. They offer more than 30 different varieties in Cryo Hops brand pellets designed to provide intense contributions of hop flavor and aroma, allowing brewers to efficiently dose large quantities of alpha acids and oils with less volume and greater beer yields. The fully patented process provides the highest quality and most efficient concentrated lupulin pellet. Learn more at Yakima Chief. Hey, Nano Brewers. Learn, share, and exchange during an upcoming Fermentus Academy event. Join the session at Jack's Abbey Craft Loggers in Framingham, Massachusetts on July 12th, or the session at the Goose Island Barrel House in Chicago on July 14th. The program of lectures includes the following topics. Yeast and fermentation basics, yeast management in breweries, and the latest research from Fermentus R&D. For additional questions about these Fermentus Academy days or about any other event, please visit the event calendar at fermentus.com. And also, you can get access to hundreds of hours of on-demand videos covering small craft brewery strategies with BYO's new Nano Plus membership. Learn from craft beer experts watching replays of past NanoCon seminars, plus a complete library of in-depth workshops. You'll also have full online access to all of BYO's digital content and an annual print magazine subscription. Check out byo.com slash nanoplus for more details. Theirs was a relationship forged over fermentation. Back when Eric Kirchner was working at Russian River as the head brewer, he met Jennifer Harris, who, as the story they tell goes, was at the bar talking about fermented foods, namely sauerkraut and pickles. A conversation started, a spark happened, and plans were hatched to open up a co-fermentation business. It took a while, with some moves across the country, but the pair eventually moved back to California, set up in Pismo Beach, and started Culture House, a small brewery that makes the most out of the space it has and focuses on both beers and foods and the intersection of both. Jennifer and Eric share more on the company and how they're making it work. Eric, I imagine when people look at your resume and they see a certain Santa Rosa-based brewery in your history, they get a little excited because Russian River is Russian River. And it's not uncommon for you know brewers to work at well-known places and then strike out on their own and, and hang their own shingle. 
what I found interesting was going from the pub in Santa Rosa of Russian River, you wanted a you wanted to be small. You wanted a five barrel system where I guess and, and maybe this is like an old school thought in my mind, but you know, most people would be like, Yeah, I'm gonna put in a 15 barrel, you know, or maybe I'll go up to 25 because I've 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 had that experience. What was the appeal for you striking out, you know, with Jennifer? To I mean, was, start with a small system. I think that, you know, we, uh, during these times, we just didn't want to go all in with this gigantic system and have huge overheads where we wanted to start more organically and develop the branding and move in from there. And I had been doing some consulting uh, prior to this, and I had gone back to my roots and done more home brewing to establish and develop um, recipes for that company. Uh, Pretoria Fields in, in Albany, Georgia, and it was it was nice to go back to that route uh, because I had been doing commercial brewing for so long that I was just creating the recipes, or I, I was just brewing the recipes, and I wanted to go back to my creative roots. And the small breweries, they have that. Uh, you don't have to sell a ton of beer. You know, you can experiment more, and there's, you know, you're you're able to take risks that some of the bigger breweries are worried about selling all this beer. So we, we get to do some really fun stuff that way. The, the home brewer angle though, of going back to really being hands-on and really thinking about everything. And, and, and I know that there's some breweries that open up these days that have 20 barrel systems and all that, and you need other people. Like you need, you know, a brewer if you're the owner probably, or, but when you're smaller and you can think about every step of the process without having to worry about too much of the outside world, have, have you found that freeing since uh, you've opened? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I'd like to be in control of all the aspects of the brewing and that's why I am a brewer. So if I were to be in a bigger place, it's, it's just, as you said, I would have multiple people that I'd have to train and train them to do exactly what I'd like to do. And in this situation, you know, I do single batches. There's no mixing and blending into double batches, um, you know, larger fermenter tanks or anything like that. So I do have my fingerprint on every single thing. And in, in a small tasting room, you know, it's a thousand square foot from the back of my brewery to the front of the building. And I basically, uh, you know, I could see in my cameras what's going on in the tasting room and I could, I could be working in the brewery and stop what I'm doing and walk out and tap a beer. Uh, all within like a minute. So it's very tight and very uh, appealing to me in, in the way that I, I, I can be involved with my guests, you know, right in the middle of brewing. Um, I don't usually do that. I usually kind of stash myself in the back when I'm brewing, but um, I just really like that hands-on experience. And if it becomes too big, then I'm full of administrative work and training people and having other people do all the, all the work for you where I enjoy the work. So it's nice for me to have my my fingerprint on everything. Jennifer, are are you enjoying the work as well? <laughs> I am. And we are um, in a very exciting part of our lives with a two-year-old at home. And so oh, goodness. Um, I am really excited for when in this next year, my little one is in preschool and I'll get to spend even more hours over there, you know, filling up crocs and creating pickles and um, it's, it's been wonderful to see 
not only how pickles have been received uh, in this area, but we started with some, you know, real standard, easy, approachable recipes and have sort of expanded out to do more funky, you know, fermented cauliflowers and, and just kind of some weird uh, things that, you know, people, especially in this region, we're not in a big city. We don't have as many progressive cutting edge fermentation companies in this area. So uh, it's been great to, to see the reception of it all. And it's wonderful, you know, as Eric's partner to know how much joy and satisfaction he really does get out of the entire creation process and having, you know, just being able to be a part of the, and witnessing of uh, a brew from, you know, creation and him essentially pouring over books and recipes and tweaking things and talking to me about what every ingredient is going to be for three weeks until he finally <laughs> brews it and then creating it and then adjusting and then talking to me about, you know, hitting all of his numbers and, and where efficiencies are increasing and getting to know his system better. And then seeing the reception of his beers with people, that's the real joy. You know, when you're in a partnership with someone who you actually enjoy seeing them happy as well. Uh, it's great because when he was at a bigger place and there were other people that had their hands in the process, you know, sometimes something goes wrong and it can be kind of a heartbreak, like, oh, this was going so well. And then the way this person carbonated, it didn't work out, you know? And uh, so the, the fun is me getting to witness him having his hands on everything and how much people are loving it. Um, and, and also, doing as much as I can right now with creating our own house sauerkrauts and mustards and sauces and of course pickles and then um, <laughs> I make all of our own house like artisan shrubs and sodas with local fruits and so I can just expand and expand and do that stuff more and begin to sell those things over the counter uh, when I have a little bit more time when I'm not a full-time mom. <laughs> I, I, I have a five-year-old now. So going back even just three years, it, 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 it's, a vast, it, it's a huge, vast uh, difference. Um, it, you know, it, it gets more, it, it's always fun, but it gets more fun and just a little bit easier and then harder and then easier. And harder. Um, but the, the idea of fermentation, and I'm, gl I'm glad you brought this up, but the idea of fermentation, especially on shows like this, we're usually just focused on beer, but when we're talking about pickles and we're talking about sauerkraut and we're talking about pickled vegetables and um, there's, there's so much that can be done by small breweries. And I, and I think it's easier if you're smaller, probably uh, cause you can control a little bit more um, to diversify the business as well. And I, I know when you both started, you were coming at it from, from different angles, but have you seen synergy between fermented foods and beer that were surprising to you now that you've actually gotten running with this? Well, I think one of the biggest um, reflections that I have on that is that people understand when they're coming into a small place that they're enjoying a one bat, you know, a, a, a small batch product. And so the people who are excited to try some of Eric's more unique or beers, or just know that they are at a small brewery that isn't going to have, you know, the same 15 things on draft every time they come in, um, are also excited to try seasonal and artisanal pickled things. And so I feel like the synergy really comes through in the customer's appreciation of, 
oh, I really loved this thing. And I came back and they don't have it because they're not making anymore because it's not in season. Now she's pickling something else. And it's the same understanding with beer. Oh, I had this beer, this hazy or this whatever. I'm back for it. Oh, it's not on the menu anymore. Well, they're a small brewery. They're going to be changing their tap list. They're going to be moving through styles. And that's part of the fun for our customers is coming in and seeing what we, you know, have. Um, I think some of the other synergies are just that, you know, we are always aware of temperature and extreme cleanliness. You know, you have to be clean in a kitchen no matter what, but when you're talking about microbes running a party, then you want to make sure that there's nothing in the rodeo other than the microbes that you want and that they have the right temperatures to do, you know, run their act. And so there's those similarities just on more of a, um, uh, yeah, microbiological standpoint is that with what Eric's doing and with what I'm doing, you know, we have more concerns than your average pastry chef would have as far as <laughs> tem- temperatures and, you know, things aren't uh, cooked, you know, in, in the same way, a, a ferment is a raw living product. So, um, yeah, that's what I see. Eric, what about you? Well, it's interesting because, you know, early on at Russian River, we, and, and even uh, the whole way through, I always worked with sour beers right alongside of clean beers. Um, and you have to be just really meticulous. There's like different hoses and there's cleaning afterwards and trying to keep them separated. But, you know, you look in history when they had these farmhouse breweries and everything were together and how did they do it then? And I think there was some mixed cultures going on uh, in both situations. And and that's the funny thing. Like you think, oh, worry, you're worried about the beer, but you just you have to be just as worried about the pickles because, you know, as much as you want to keep some of that bacteria out of your beer, you want to keep the yeast out of the pickles as well. So it can go both ways. Um, but it's it's just interesting. We're really educational, even with our staff. And and it's the whole point is like I mean, like our our stove is a quarter inch from our mash tun. They're really like on top of each other. Uh, when I'm brewing. There's an occasion when, you know, we have to take the missing place and, and we push it out because it's on wheels just so that two people can work in a space designed for one, one person. So, you know, there's that overlay where we do have two days off. So I try to gear everything when I know I'm going to be taking over the old space, um, you know, where I'm on a day off. But then we have a guy come in and does prep or occasionally the schedule will work out where it's on a Thursday or Wednesday, hopefully not a Friday or Saturday. And there's that like, okay, we really got to work together here and watch for cleanliness, safety, you know, the whole deal. And it becomes fun when you're brewing right alongside the cook sometimes and, uh, you know, interacting. That That's interesting that you bring up schedules though, of like, hopefully not a, you know, like a, like a Friday, because I imagine it would be busy there. And that, and that's one of the reasons why you wouldn't want to be doing it. But like, are you at the mercy of production schedules you know i'm I'm not as much as a larger facility okay what i've what i've tried you know we're in slow county and i've tried to slow things down a little bit um Mm. and the reason i'm doing that is i'm i'm working with all these it's a very california expression by the way but yes (laughs) slow yeah so it's it's really (laughs) i mean i'm from jersey and it's just like all right just go faster please go go yes yes Well, I grew up in Pennsylvania and lived in Jersey and Atlantic City and all that area. And there. You so lived in Atlantic City? I bartended there for a little over a year. Oh, man. We got to talk about that off air later on because <laughs> right like what a that's a job. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Yeah. The, Jer- the Jersey way. Yeah, man. 
I cover I covered casinos uh, for the newspaper I worked at for a long time, and I had to spend a lot of time in AC, and that's uh, that's a town, that's an experience. Yeah, they, and as long as you don't call me a shoebie, <laughs> just don't call me a Benny, and we're fine. <laughs> uh, what, what was I talking about now? Oh, the I schedule. Have, I have no idea. Schedule, yeah. Schedule. Well, I I do you know like because I'm working with it, it's been a learning experience because you know uh, my a lot of my prior experience was working with like two, maybe three yeast strains. And they're very predictable when you're working with them all the time. But in this space, I'm constantly, you know, adding different yeast strains because I like the variety. So instead of running out 15 generations or more, I'm doing like two generation per yeast strain. So there's always a, a, you know, like relearning the, you know, how to recover the yeast and use it for two strains and treat it just right when they act, they all act so differently. So my schedule gets extended out for different temperature drops. And, you know, one yeast I might be able to ferment or pull off at 60 degrees. Another one, 64. There's another one that might have to go to 50, uh, 40 degrees just to be able to harvest the yeast. So all that is time constraints. And then, you know, I'll fill in as a bartender one shift because someone's sick and I'll have to push things back. So I'm always manipulating my, you know, my schedule all around things. Jennifer, I imagine that there's people listening who are like, well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll add a you know fermented food uh, component to, to, to my small brewery. Um, but I imagine that your skills and the people you know that, that you're working with um, are different from brewer skills. Like it's all microbes and it's all uh, fermentation, but can the average say- brewer do what you do? I yeah, I would say they're already uh, more educated and more set up than, uh, you know, even somebody who was culinary trained to cook food because there's just a different knowledge of, as I mentioned earlier, just watching really the environment of what the microbial activity and where the changes are taking place. And it's really, you know, I also teach people how to start fermenting at home. And one of the things I always say is, it's, it's something that all of our great grandmothers did without books in the internet and YouTube. So just remember that everybody's great grandmother at some point salted something and let it sit and then tasted it and said, oh, I guess it's done now and tried it and, you know, and, and decided if she wanted to let it go longer next time or, or whatever. So it, fermentation is at its roots, a very simple and traditional practice. However, when you start getting into uh, doing things commercially and you want there to be a certain consistency, especially for, you know, say sauerkraut, where you really, there are some variables with high temperatures or, um, you know, sugars that can take over different times when vegetables are harvested at different times of the year, they have different water content, different sugar contents. And so a brewer will understand those variables more than an average cook would, and then be able to apply what changes might be needed or troubleshoot at any, you know, turn of events in, in, in the duration uh, of a ferment. And one of the things, one of the reasons why this business plan works and why I would encourage other people to consider it as well okay. is that is that there is actually a longevity to these products, right? So if you're running a restaurant and you're trying to keep a fresh salad on uh, your menu and you're running through, you know, lettuce, it's going, it's going bad because people aren't ordering that exact salad or whatever. What we wanted is we wanted a concept that says, what does, what is an actual preserved, 
ingredient that we can serve where our menu is made up of foods that have a longevity and we're not going to turn and burn through, you know, fresh spinach and fresh lettuce and everything every day, but we're still providing um, a delicious and healthy meal. So, you know, for somebody who's a startup and they're looking at efficiencies and you're looking at cost of goods for a restaurant menu, if you have a salad and you have three days on that lettuce or you make a batch of sauerkraut and it can sit in your fridge for three months, you know, if you can figure out how to use that product in a way that's going to sell, it's kind of a no brainer because you have a packed in preservation technique. Eric, are you thinking about pairings with the menu? I mean, from the very beginning, you know, our, our, our name was sort of resembled German beer hall kind of idea and concept. And yeah, when I know, you know, my partner makes the best sauerkraut I've ever had in my life. And I grew up with my parents stomping it in the backyard. Uh, I thought, Oh, what goes better, you know, pork or sausage, you know? So we, we do like sausage sandwiches with sauerkrauts and all kinds of pickles and, you know, you have that with a beer. I mean, you're pretty well set right there. And, and I used to go to the Toronado. But, what, the but what's the right kind of beer? I don't, I don't want to interrupt you on Toronado, but like, what's the right kind of beer for that? Well, God, it just uh, depends. we've got spicy sausage. We've got mild sausage. I mean, it's like, it depends on what you order. There's so many different ways to play with the, with the cuisine and the, and the beers. And one thing I think that can be overdone sometimes is acidity and bitterness. And so if you're going to chow down an entire pickle plate, you might want to get his cream ale or a porter uh, instead of having, you know, his West Coast IPA, because sometimes those, you know, more intense, sour and bitters uh, just don't play well on the palate. I mean, some people might love it. And, and you know, we were, we were mentioning uh, earlier before the, the, the start of this um, that we talked about doing some collaborations where we actually combine them, the same similar ingredients. So, you know, obviously to make the beer sour, you know, instead of doing a traditional kettle sour with like a lacto uh, ferment or, or, you know, a bulk culture, we would try to do in-house stuff. So we might start out with a sour mash and then, you know, talk to Jen about uh, what she has going on in a brine or possibly doing and creating a brine with a, you know, a citrus fruit. So we can add, the citrus lacto component of the of the actual ferment, possibly the citric flavor of the fruit, and combine that with grains. And you know, right now I'm thinking more along the lines of wheat beers and gozas and you know wit beers, things like that, to to complement the flavors so they're actually paired together with the food, um, as well as something that uh, complements in the, the sense of a much more maltier flavor that will absorb some of those acid flavors as well. When the BYO team was out in your part of California uh, just a couple of weeks ago, um, they were talking about the size of your space, which you brought up of being able to walk from one end to the next, um, but the efficiency of which you use your space. Can, can you talk about that, of how you mapped out where you wanted what you know, we're, and, we're and how it works? Yeah. We were looking for like how to put the most firepower in the smallest amount of space. So I looked at the space and we liked it, but I was just like, there's no way I can put a brewery in there. So I've always been good at puzzles and I just like to solve problems. So I went about trying to solve it. And, uh, you know, I would have loved to buy like on this market, a used system, but I was unable to, because no matter how many systems I looked at, the only ones were the ones that I had to 
create and design myself to make everything fit. So, you know, we, we had measurements of the entire building and I had to remeasure everything because they weren't as accurate as I needed. Uh, we're talking about like juxtaposition of, of you know, of, of different tanks that are like straddled. And then I have double stack tanks. I have bright tanks on top of fermenters with about a half inch clearance to the ceiling. So just the, the engineering to get them in the door and stand them up and put them all in place in such a small space. And then, you know, decide that, oh, I'm going to do this in a kitchen as well. Uh, was a, a bit daunting. And luckily, I'm not a very large frame person. So I can sneak behind these tanks to work on glycol. Uh, you know, I, I, everything just had to be designed within that space. I had to redesign some things. Uh, we put an RO system in. And then I ended up getting a, a you know, single head. It was the smallest keg washer that we could possibly find that just barely fits into the space that we had left after everything else was installed. You know, now we're looking at possibly, you know, a tabletop canner. Well, I'm like, okay, where am I going to put it? You know, so there's like one space left. I found that would probably, if I put a shelf together, would be able to store this. And we have, you know, little lofts and crawl spaces above our cold box and above the bathroom, which enable us storage for the restaurant and other things. But yeah, there's, it's, it's a very feng shui. I had to really, <laughs> they kept trying to tuck me out of going with, you know, a five barrel system because they thought it was too big for the space, but I was able to put it in uh, three fermenters, three bright tanks, hot liquor tank, um, no cold liquor tank. I moved the water through my heat exchange and used the glycol to chill it down on the way to the mash mixer just to be able to like, you know, maximize my RO water, uh, you know, so that I don't use all the filtered water either. So there's a bit of a blending with my water as well. Okay. Um, an RO system though, is that just necessary for where you are? Uh, most of the brewers that brewed in this area when I moved here had RO systems and they talked about, you know, different issues with magnesium and other, you know, we're on a coastal town like two blocks from the ocean. So the more I talked to everyone, the more I thought it was the way to go. So we found uh, craft brew water had like a real small 850 model that we took. And I used that initially just hundred percent into my hot liquor tank and then uh, about 50 parts per million. And now uh, when I'm heat exchanging, I usually push back in filtered water. So the whole building's filtered, but the water will go back in. So every time I brew, I have to, you know, measure my water and look at everything. And it always stays within a range, but every brew, I basically measure all the parts of my water just to, to see where I'm at based on this unmeasurable uh, blending that I'm doing, um, you know, based on my cleaning cycles and everything. So, you know, I'm, I'm always brewing with a different water profile every single time. And then I use my RO to blend that down and then I'll use my salts to sort of match my profiles each time. Is there, we're in a, we're in a yeah, sorry, unique, go ahead. I was, yeah. I was just going to say, please. we're in a unique, uh, we're in a unique position in California because, um, in Northern California, there's, there's a difference, but you know, once you get down below central, you know, where we're in kind of central California and anything lower than us, especially you're really working with water. That's water. That's coming down a, a, a waterway, a pipeline from very far away. And there can be changes in that water from time to time based on treatment facilities that calculate things hundreds of miles away and then make additions. And so really it all comes back down to, again, consistency, um, of, of product and 
somebody else's water supply may not change during the year. Whereas if you're in California and you're in central or lower California, you're definitely going to have uh, changes in your water chemistry and composition during the year. Yeah. Um, does that uh, impact the fermentations that you're doing? You know, because all of our water is highly filtered going in, I don't use our water with our uh, ferments, yeah. but um, oh, it is very filtered, the water that we use. And I don't notice any, any difference. Um, you know, again, when you're already looking at seasonal changes with vegetables and, and flavor uh, varieties that come in with even a, between growers, um, even with a cabbage, you would get more changes from the vegetable than I think uh, a minerality difference in the water. You, there are some non-alcoholic cultures like um, that we want to get more into in the future, um, a kefir, like a water kefir culture and different mm -hmm. things where they actually are more sensitive to minerality. And you can see big swings in the efficiency of how something is fermenting based on the, um, uh, the presence of certain minerals. But luckily I, I haven't had to worry about any of that yet. When you're small, how important is diversity of offerings? Eric, you want me to go or you want to go? You know, I, I don't let that bother me. I already have a diverse enough mind that I, I just have um, from brewing for a while now. I have, I have quite a, a list of beers that I can brew and I've only kind of scratched on the surface and then brewing commercially for another brewer, I also, from the very beginning, I was doing more esoteric beers and I had to put that on hold to develop, you know, what I wanted to, as far as like process control and stuff and, and work for other people that uh, really knew what they were doing in, in larger facilities. But I already have like just tons of things that I want to try. So diversity to me, you know, if, if I have the time, it comes easy because I really want to just keep showcasing new things and I think that's what makes us special being small uh, that, you know, we don't have like all these cores that we're distributing and rely on those people wanting that beer all the time, you know, for a lot of people come in here and they, they miss the beers I have. So I just make a mental note. Okay. I'm going to brew that next time that yeast strain comes around. But in the meantime, you know, this is along those lines, maybe with a different yeast, you know, I've got hazy IPAs. I have West coast IPAs, double IPAs, just an IPA strain. And then I'll do a Belgian IPA, you know, so there's always that aspect going on, but then I'll throw out, you know, a flower beer. That's like a Saison or, a, you know, an ancient Gruet. So I'm always trying to like sort of mix things up because I feel like I'd like us to be that small nimble person that like, when you come in here, you ex not necessarily expect, but you get excited about the offerings where if you go into a lot of breweries today, they, they have the same offerings everywhere you go because the, that's the seller, you know, they, they, that's what the people want. Well, I'm trying to sort of expand on, you know, what my offerings are just to educate and give them something and, and expand their knowledge even. What Eric's really up against right now is this crazy game of Tetris with storage as well. And so when you're looking at us as a small brewery, it's not just the fermentation tank uh, storage that he has or, or the, I'm sorry, the fermentation tank volume that he can do with so many, you know, beers in process at a time, but it's also the storage of completed beers. And yeah. so you look at, you know, the size of our cold box and until we make that jump to you know, maybe getting a, a cold storage rental somewhere, refrigerated, you know, storage, 
what he's doing is always looking at, okay, what's selling fastest? What do I need to keg down? How many accounts can I serve with this beer before we run out of it before I'm going to brew another one? Because that's a popular beer. We want to keep that on, but I want to try these new things. You know, it's kind of like this mad science, you know, rotation of how can I fit X amount of gallons of beer in a bright tank or in a keg in cold storage or out in accounts and, um, as Eric mentioned, we are going to bring on a real small canning line and that's just going to yeah. throw in another mix of, you know, where we can actually put finished product because Eric will turn out as many recipes and a whole rainbow of beers if he has the space, you know, and time to do it. Um, but it's also, it's just like the balance between, as he already mentioned, having something that somebody can find approachable at a brewery that they want to try. And having a mix of the different exciting, you know, or maybe possibly slightly strange uh, beer that they've never tried before. What about packaging for you, though, Jennifer? We want to do, again, it's all the size. So the next, you know, step is to do uh, to-go sales where, you know, it's we have like the Crowler model of a 16-ounce glass jar. And mm-hmm. so somebody... You know, somebody can say, hey, I really want to take your, you know, pickled beets or your sauerkraut to go. And one of our bartenders can ring it through the system. Our chef will pack it down, hand write on the label that it's, you know, this product made on this day, packaged on this day, good until this day. And then it goes out the door. But we're not going to ever sit and pack three flats of sauerkraut and hope that they sell in a 16 ounce jar. Gotcha. It just doesn't make sense. At this point, yeah, yeah, I've got my little two-year-old here, so I'm going to throw this back to Aaron. (laughs) There is a lot of people asking about when we're going to sell our pickles out, so that is on the horizon, and it it does take you know these small footprint. You really need to uh, see what you can sell out the door. Like we only have so many seats in house for people in here, so we're finding that you know to get people in the door, you know, is one thing, but then like if we can have them maybe buy a couple extra things before they leave some things to go perhaps you know they're not sure when they're coming back so they want to take some pickles with them or they want to yeah. take some beer with them then it just extends our footprint a little bit and 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 it also like diversifies aside from like the t-shirt or the hat or the pint glass that somebody buys as well like and it's something that i don't know has a tangible edible obviously um feel to it for your, for for customers yeah, it's you know it's like edible art. You get to take it with you and enjoy it. I love it. Thanks to the two of you for being on the show this month. I really appreciate it. All right, well, thank you so much for having us, John. Okay, we'll have more in just a moment, but first, a word of thanks to this episode's sponsors. Yakima Chief Hops has been building a robust portfolio of their Cryo Hops brand products for the last five years. They offer more than 30 different varieties in Cryo Hops brand pellets designed to provide intense contributions of hop flavor and aroma, allowing brewers to efficiently dose large quantities of alpha acids and oils with less volume and greater beer yields. The fully patented process provides the highest quality and most efficient concentrated lupulin pellet. Learn more at Yakima Chief. Com. Hey, Nano Brewers! Learn, share, and exchange during an upcoming Fermentus Academy event. Join the session at Jack's Abbey Craft Loggers in Framingham, Massachusetts on July 12th, 
with a session at the Goose Island Barrel House in Chicago on July 14th. The program of lectures includes the following topics, yeast and fermentation basics, yeast management in breweries, and the latest research from Fermentus R&D. For additional questions about these Fermentus Academy days or about any other event, please visit the event calendar at fermentus.com. And also, you can get access to hundreds of hours of on-demand videos covering small craft brewery strategies with BYO's new Nano Plus membership. Learn from craft beer experts watching replays of past NanoCon seminars, plus a complete library of in-depth workshops. You'll also have full online access to all of BYO's digital content and an annual print magazine subscription. Check out byo.com slash nanoplus for more details. At the start of the summer, it's only natural for a brewer's thoughts to turn to hop harvest, that magic time of year when binds are harvested and cones are processed and turned into beer. Before that, however, the work on the farm needs to be done. And Gail Goshi, a third-generation hop farmer in Oregon, is here to talk about how 2022 is going so far and what is needed to set up a successful harvest. From there, she's going to share what's currently growing on Goshi Farms and what's on the horizon. She always has wonderful, keen insight into hop growing in the Pacific Northwest. And she's even extending an invitation for small brewers to come and visit. She spoke to me from the farm. I think there's a lot of, this is the time of year where harvest is starting to creep into brewers' minds and wondering what is going to happen in, in a few months. What's the current season like? What's the, what's the, what's the report from the farm, Gail? Right. Well, th this season is, uh, I just reflect on it as the Oregon weather that I re remember has, has returned. And that means that we're getting our usual rainfalls that we really haven't had uh, for the last, um, oh, three to three to five years. And, you know, it's one of those situations where isn't the saying, be careful what you, what you wish for. Yeah. Um, because the rains have come in the usual, in what I would say the usual manner, but my goodness, um, they're still continuing at this point. It's, it's not problematic. It's just that growers really need to, to realize that the conditions that we've been dealing with of, of dry April, dry May and June, um, aren't with us this year, and the rains are bringing wonderful, wonderful um, vitality to the fields, but it's also the situation of mildew, which happens when you have, um, when you have humidity, that comes with rainfall, and when you have temperatures that are getting into the upper 60s and 70s. So we're, we're, we're kind of fighting some, some uh, usual battles of old, um, you know, not, not, not really anything that's, that is causing a lot of concern, but it's just, again, looking, looking at the season and kind of um, working with mother nature with a season that is much more like what I remember. So, for mother nature to keep cooperating to get us to august september what do the next couple of weeks need to look like 
Well, for us on the farm, the next couple of weeks need to, the, the, the rains need to certainly slow down, if not just, oh, let's just say stop. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so that, so that um, the, the temperature can, you know, uh, stay in the upper 60s, 70s, hopefully. That's like, a, that's an Oregonian's just um, natural uh, temperament and to temperature to be able to, to thrive in, whether you're a hop or, or an Oregonian. And, and then, and then that allows the plants themselves that we've hand trained onto the strings the 1st of May, it allows them to get to what we call wire height. So the height of the trellis, which is about 18 feet. And we shoot for the date of the 4th of July to have the crop, have those all of those vines at the wire height. And the reason for that is, is that the plant is, the plant uh, really reacts more to, um, more to the, the progress of daylight mm -hmm. rather than like, for example, the wine grapes that we grow, we, we concentrate a lot on heat units. So how much heat has accumulated data a day through the growing season to then uh, have the plant progress into its flowering, into putting fruit on. Same thing with hops, except um, heat is certainly a component. So the amount of warm days, but it's day length that uh, gets the plant to the top of the trellis. And then at, at the 4th of July, day length is starting to be at its optimum point to trigger that plant to not just keep growing upwards, but to start putting arms on. The arms are, will then branch out and that's where the hop flowers will be formed and the hop flowers then become the hop cones. So we're looking really good, I think. Um, I th think that as far as timing, timing that sequence, and well, Mother Nature is 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 timing it. We're just yeah. we we just guess all the way back in May as to what what day to really start the plant uh, with this action, and uh, and so I'm I'm really encouraged by the season. I know the question always comes up of what's new, uh, what's exciting. Um, but to, to take a step back to some of the more established or traditional uh, varieties that are, that are growing on the farm, um, how are they all still holding up? How are the, how are the stalwarts of, of hops faring these days, both in you know, growing, but also, but also interest? That's, that's a great question. Um, at, uh, on our farm, we are, we're concentrating still on um, almost all public varieties. And so that, that brings in all those stalwarts. Um, we have the, the three C's, so Cascade, Centennial, Crystal. Uh, we have some of the, some of the European, um, some of the, the, U.S. 
adaptations of European varieties, for example, uh, Tetnang mm. or, or even Willamette, which was a replacement that, that Oregon State University and USDA came up with bread to replace a fuggle, a Tetnang, that type of hop. Uh, we have Sterling, we have Nugget. And so those are, you know, those are, those are hops that have been around for 30 years and, and they have, they still have an interest and they, and in a lot of cases, they have a rising interest with brewers that are not looking for necessarily a hop with just a lot of wow and pop. Uh, but maybe one that can be added to a brew that will, will give the brew a foundation that, that sometimes maybe um, brews can lack if you, don't, if you don't have a full profile, mouth profile. So, there, so it's, it's, it's fun to work with those. What we have been able to take advantage of in all of those older varieties is a, a program that comes out of Prosser, Washington, uh, the USDA program in, out of Prosser. And what, what this particular arm of, of um, the USDA is doing is taking not only hops, but other agricultural crops and, and taking them into um, a, basically a cleanup lab. So hops, any, any, any agricultural crop that's out in the natural world, they're going to naturally pick up viruses and viroids and, and, and certain um, diseases that if you're working with that same rootstock year after year, your production is probably going to fail. You're going to probably end up having more problems growing the crop. And so to be able to go take material through what's called the clean plant network, we're then revitalizing those older varieties, cleaning them up, and then seeing how they um, adapt in our fields, and they're adapting very well. They they are thriving. They're uh, they're they're coming through with less disease problems, higher yields, and that all leads to just a, a beautiful hot product. Before we started recording, you were mentioning. I, I was looking through your website. And I saw Pico hops, which which are, are are new to me. And and you mentioned that you were uh, growing them on the farm to see how they do uh, in your region of the Pacific Northwest versus versus Yakima. Um, how I, I I haven't spent too much time on this, but how important is it to to show diversity of regional growth for the overall hop industry? I think it's really important, and it's become more evident in the in the in the last few years um, to to look at at the differences in in regional growth in the Pacific Northwest, um, as well as across the United States. 
there's there can be advantages in different situations to every one of the particular regions and there can also be for for the for the with the far majority of the commercial um, production coming from the Pacific Northwest, uh, it's important to to realize, and brewers are are very good at realizing that since it's not just the the, the grower that is is making the particular crop of hops in any given season, it's mother nature as well. And we've had some very odd weather patterns and and climate change situations in the last few years that you 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 just you know you'd love to be able to say absolutely i can deliver your uh, the the hops to you um year after year without any problem but when mother nature comes through and and gives a a, a temperate climate like oregon 115 degree days, a, a heat dome of sorts in June, um, let alone if it even happens for us in July, that really throws can, can throw a, a plant's production off. And there can be situations where, where for un, sometimes unknown reasons, there can be a um, there can be a year where it's very problematic with certain diseases um, or certain insect populations, and and so you 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 can't as a um, grower make any bold statements, and you have to realize as a brewer that that it, this is a natural product. And you need to look at diversity in order to be able to make sure that you're getting the the the, uh, the hops that you that you need. On the other hand, yeah. Um, wow, there's some excitement that's happening as far as looking at at what a hop that is grown in the temperate climate of Oregon versus into the Yakima Valley. Um, that's just, you know, that's just a natural situation of different potential production systems. And, and it's, it's exciting for me to, to just be able to see brewers that are really diving deep uh, and, and looking at, at the different regions and what those different conditions bring to a hop same variety grown both locations what they bring to the to to the hop what they what that hop brings to the brew that's 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 a really exciting part of of what's happening and going forward as you talk about though climate change and the other impacts that that are that are happening it's there's obviously a lot of worry that you as a farmer have to to, to, to take on because this is this is your livelihood um, but given how critically important your region is to the overall beer industry um, and how critically important hops are to it, it, it is there anything that you'd want professional brewers home brewers drinkers to be thinking about or 
acting upon when it comes to the longevity of farming in your region, especially for a crop that we all adore and rely on? That's a that, that's an interesting question. I I I think that there is such a great communication system that has developed uh, between growers and brokers and brewers that that there really is a, a great understanding um, in this time about what's happening on the farm. How, how sophisticated we are as far as our farming and our farming systems. You know, we're, we're, we're um, sitting in Oregon with, with a, a grand amount of, of natural rainfall right now. Um, th that, is gonna, that is going to lighten up. We are gonna need to then start to efficiently apply irrigation water to our crop. We'll do that through through drip lines, uh, drip irrigation. That's 90, 95% efficient. Um, and, and we'll be able to spoon feed our, our crop to, to harvest uh, on, a, on a weekly basis, on every other week basis, um, being able to give that plant the, the nutrients that it needs uh, when it needs when it needs it, um, we we have a great support as far as as being able to um, efficiently harvest hops. That's that's one of the most critical parts as a hop grower, in my opinion, to be able to to be able to harvest the hops, the particular varieties, at the optimum time and to be able to take them through the processing machines and into the drying rooms and, and be able to preserve a, a cone that will either then make it to the brewer as that whole cone, or most likely make it to the brewer as a, as a very sophisticated made pellet. There was a Again, before we started recording, uh, we were talking about sort of the background of this show, and you, you brought up the similarities between nano brewers and farmers that I hadn't really thought about before, but that's been rattling around now in the back of my brain as, as, as we've been having this conversation. Um, where, where do you see the similarities between you know, what, what small, you know, sometimes single uh, uh, single employee places uh, in, in, in the beer space um, have in common with small American farms. Yeah, yes. I, I mean, I, I really do uh, enjoy being able to make this comparison because because I've seen it through the years. I've seen, um, you know, I've seen some really wonderful um, pioneers in the brewing industry that have brought companies, large companies to a very successful level. And all of a sudden they're thinking, I'm out of here. I wanted, I just want to make beer again because they've they've suddenly become entrenched in administration rather than, than hands-on. 
and I think we all we all know um, some really tremendous brewers that uh, that have have done that that are doing that, and I love it because when I think about my time through the years on our family farm, a lot of it, well, all, well, well, it all began out in the field. Um, that was that was where that was where my training um, began, and I think I think from my father's attitude, that was where I was being proven whether I was serious or not about growing hops, and so to, and it's the hands-on part of farming, and it's the hands-on part of nano brewing that that really is brings in the art uh, to to the the person involved, um, brings in the love of what you're really doing, because in both cases, it can be really long, hard hours, and it can be six, if not seven days a week. Um, And and to to people outside of our industries, I I have friends that, that shake their heads when I'm not uh, ready to jump onto a to a hike or a or or a climb on the weekend because I'm saying no I really need to be on the farm and when I say that it's I can you know the farm will go on without me I know that but it is but it's entrenched in my being to be able to just be actively involved. And that's what that's what I love about nano breweries. The it's the owners that are hands-on involved. I love it. Is it too late for people to start making plans to visit the farms this year? Should they be thinking about 2023 or is there still time to make plans to get out and see everything in action later on this oh, summer and fall? Yeah, great, great, great. Um I we love to have visitors. We love to have brewers visit. We we have not opened the farm up to any sort of of um, agritainment. Let's say <laughs> we, <laughs> we we prefer to be able to to talk to to folks that are um, that are involved in the industry and and welcome um, folks to come and and be able to to see the hops. It's, um, you know, the, of course, harvest time is the most exciting time. And it's, and it is a time where there is a lot of activity going on. We're in high concentration on being able to harvest. But the, but the good part is, is that we're all concentrating, like, on the same thing, we're in, we're, we're not, uh, we're not moving from farm to farm, uh, and and kind of spending as farmers spending a day concentrating on one area versus another it's all about harvest and it's actually a great time for for visitors to come by and see the harvest in action be able to smell the hops as they go from uh fresh off the vine into the drying floors and and it's um it's a wonderful boost as a farmer to be able to know that that people really 
value and have an interest in in the crop that we grow. Uh, when I think, you know, in general uh, for agriculture, there are very few farmers that have the luxury that a hop farmer has to be able to have uh, consumers uh, uh, now recognizing different hop varieties, consumers excited about different hop flavors, brewers that are really wanting to be able to, to understand more about the hops that they're brewing with. And that all that all really comes together at harvest season. So um, you the please nano brewers um, out there that haven't found me yet, please please read out, reach out and and come see the farm. I love it. Gail, thanks for taking the time this month and being on the show and I really, as always, appreciate your insights and uh, looking forward to visiting the farm myself and seeing you in, in person soon. I would love that, John. Thank you. What's on your hop harvest wish list? You can email us. It's nano at BYO.com. And I'm going to invite you to head over to BYO.com slash nano podcast and subscribe to the newsletter, the magazine, and to catch up with great pro brewing content. New episodes of this show are released on the 15th of every month, so subscribe now and never miss a show when it's released. And you can also do us a favor by leaving feedback on your podcast platform of choice or by emailing nano at byo.com or checking in with us on all of the BYO social media channels. And as always, thanks to this episode's sponsors. Yakima Chief Hops has been building a robust portfolio of their Cryo Hops brand products for the last five years. They offer more than 30 different varieties in Cryo Hops brand pellets designed to provide intense contributions of hop flavor and aroma, allowing brewers to efficiently dose large quantities of alpha acids and oils with less volume and greater beer yields. The fully patented process provides the highest quality and most efficient concentrated lupulin pellet. Learn more at Yakima Chief. Hey, Nano Brewers, learn, share, and exchange during an upcoming Fermentus Academy event. Join the session at Jack's Abbey Craft Loggers in Framingham, Massachusetts on July 12th, or the session at the Goose Island Barrel House in Chicago on July 14th. The program of lectures includes the following topics, yeast and fermentation basics, yeast management in breweries, and the latest research from Fermentus R&D. For additional questions about these Fermentus Academy days or about any other event, please visit the event calendar at fermentus.com. And also, you can get access to hundreds of hours of on-demand videos covering small craft brewery strategies with BYO's new Nano Plus membership. Learn from craft beer experts watching replays of past NanoCon seminars, plus a complete library of in-depth workshops. You'll also have full online access to all of BYO's digital content and an annual print magazine subscription. Check out byo.com slash nanoplus for more details. I'm John Hall. You can still find me weekly behind the microphone on the Drink Beer, Think Beer podcast, as well as Steal This Beer. Find those where podcasts are found, and I hope you'll tune in. Our theme music was created by Scott McCampbell, and we thank him for that. And once again, be sure to check out byo.com slash nanopodcast for all of your nano brewing needs. And for now, we wish you all the best for a small but successful brew day. Mm-hmm.